everyone, and welcome to this episode of our 7 Investing Podcast. I'm 7 Investing founder and CEO, Simon Erickson. We've gotten used to, as investors, following companies through their quarterly conference calls, where companies are reporting important metrics like their revenue growth or their quarterly earnings per share. But things are a little bit different if you're a development stage drug producer, uh, where it's actually much more interesting information is the progress of the clinical trials and the progress that you're making with drug candidates that you want to bring to market. And so it's very exciting that we have a big event coming up this next week, the JP Morgan Annual Healthcare Conference, simply known often as the JPM, is holding its 39th annual meeting. It's an all virtual event this year due to the coronavirus pandemic, but it is also one of the biggest events for the industry throughout the entire year. And I'm so happy to welcome our seven investing lead advisors, Max Chatsko and Manisha Sami, to help us follow this event talk about some of the things that they're watching as they look at this space and give some predictions of what we think we're going we're gonna to have happen after JP Morgan this year. So Max and Manisha, welcome to the podcast this evening. Hey, Simon. Hey, Manisha. How are you guys doing? Yeah, doing great, Max. Manisha, are you ready to get started? <laughs> let's roll. Uh, Max, let's start with the, the highest level question. What, what is JP Morgan? Why is this such a big deal? Yeah, so uh, JPM, let's start off when it is. It's next week. It's uh, from Monday to Thursday, or through Thursday, I should say. So uh, January 11th through January 14th. Uh, and, you know, it's a meeting conference when, you know, a lot of companies uh, get to come and pitch themselves, um, tease major announcements that are coming up, whether it's new product or uh, uh, some new service, a lot of acquisitions, a lot of deal making. Usually, uh, probably not too much of that. Um, you know, with it being a virtual event, right? There's not so much shaking hands, kissing babies anymore. Um, <laughs> okay, no kissing babies that passed JPMs. I made that up, maybe. But, um, you know, as an example, like uh, in 2014, for instance, uh, Illumina announced the $1,000 genome at JPM, right? So these are the types of announcements uh, that everybody kind of is anticipating, right, of, of that magnitude. It's really the biggest event um, of its kind for, you know, the healthcare industry. Okay. So that sounds pretty good. The 10,000 foot level, there's kissing of babies, there's some big announcements of stuff going on there. Manisha, this is an investing show. Why should investors care about the JPM? Sure. So basically the JP Morgan healthcare conference. So there's a main conference and there's a number of other side conferences surrounding it. It's everything healthcare. Um, so anyone who's even tangentially affiliated with healthcare, biotech, pharmaceuticals, med devices, uh, they, they tune in. Um, it's basically an annual thermometer for the health of the life sciences industry. It sets the tone for the rest of the year. Uh, it's especially important for, well, companies themselves. So companies, uh, both in the public sector and the private sector, um, a lot of times they start deals during this conference because it's very rare for companies to be base-to-base -base all in one place. Um, so it's real. There, there are a number of things that I look at here as an investor. One, what is the conference focused on? Usually, it gives you an indicator of what's up and coming. What are people looking at? What are companies looking at? Um, what are kind of new technologies um, that is in focus? What are people paying attention to? Um, I personally like to look at the private side of things, uh, comparing it to the public market. And are there private companies that? Um, are competitive to public companies that I own shares of, for example. Um, what should I be looking out for? Or if the IPO, what are companies that I want to have you know, on the radar if it chooses to um, go public? So um, it's a fun time. Uh, there, it's basically drinking from a fire hose. And I think as an investor, there's a lot of information that is disseminated 
um, that you know people should definitely uh, take note of. And um, it's also just fun. You get a lot of science. Um, so drinking drinking from a fire hose is a good way to put it. There's like way <laughs> too much information. And I think a lot of people are going to be overwhelmed, um, especially with it being digital, right? It's um, just everyone's going to have to rely on, you know, press releases and, and virtual presentations and things. So uh, it might be more ramped up this year, I think. Yeah, actually. Um, so usually at the JP Morgan conference, there are five uh, presentation tracks. Uh, because it's virtual this year there's nine so there are nine different presentations going on at any given time so now okay yeah usually uh so we just did like a, a podcast on ash which is a maybe like the second biggest event of the year it's only for hematology of course but is there that much clinical data getting reported at jpm it's mostly not it's not a scientific meeting right but are there companies still reporting clinical data yeah um so you know there might be a few companies who decide to release clinical data. Um, usually it's business updates. So even if they, uh, if there are companies that talk, you know, just had their quarterly earnings, for example, they might add, you know, one or two things extra or announce a new product launch. Um, so not necessarily scientific, but mostly just things that they're working on. They might uh, divulge an extra, you know, tidbit or two on kind of scientific things, but. Um, I think most of the companies, they're just talking about their product pipeline programs um, and just answering questions that uh, other companies might have or other investors might have. Well, we're going to take a, a couple of, I'll look at a couple of things that, that are really interesting to you all that are coming up from this conference next week. And by the way, Max and Nisha will be providing coverage on our at seven investing Twitter handle throughout the week. Uh, stay tuned to see the updates that they give as they learn more about what's taking place at this conference. But Max, let me start with you for the first topic that we'd like to talk about here today. Um, Nisha said there's a lot of activity with both private, private and public companies. Let's focus on the public side of that, because the first thing that you actually want to talk about is valuations in health care right now what's what's on your on your radar for this topic yeah so going into jpm as most investors know uh you know we're seeing some pretty healthy premiums especially in biotech and then drug development right um now jpm uh the conference usually you know we see these large increases some volatility around this week's conference um so i'm interested to see and watch what goes on this year right we already have this uh increased volatility in the markets just uh, at like a baseline level. Uh, so what happens when there's other announcements or partnerships or acquisitions? I mean, things could get pretty crazy this year, right? Um, I mean, I don't have any crazy predictions or anything like that, but uh, I think, you know, investors might want to hold on to their hats. <laughs> so I guess, you know, the takeaway here for me, this is how I'm approaching it. Um, you know, even in a bull market when there isn't uh, what's going on now, we still always have to guard against hype you have to be able to, you know, tease out the signal from the noise. So, we, you know, every year there's always companies that, uh, let's say they abuse the power of the press release, right? They announce things that maybe it's more fluff and marketing and it's not really anything. And their, their stock price might still jump on it. Uh, this year, I think we might see um, investors attach healthy premiums to, you know, legitimate news. Uh, and you have to be careful not to like overpay too much for something, uh, even if it's a good product or has a lot of growth opportunity. Um, you know, so... Um, just you have to be able to uh, tease out what's hype and what's not, I guess, is my uh, my takeaway there for investors who are trying to, you know, ride the volatility, I guess. 
Sure. And this is, you know, Manisha, I'll hand this to you as well, because this is a topic we've talked about before is the inefficiency of this segment of the market, right? There's, there's data points, but it's different than following the same store sales at Starbucks when you're looking at trying to clinical data and make sense of new technologies out there. I mean, do you have thoughts on private or public valuations of the companies in this space right now? Yeah, um, you know, Traditionally, I feel like early stage companies, they're riskier, but because of advances that we've seen in technology and, um, you know, before I go on, you know, it's early stage companies are always risky. Um, science has not, we haven't validated everything, but I do think because of recent technological advances, we can say that the risk level is compressing uh, a bit and we, as investors and, you know, people, um, uh, evaluating or valuing these companies, uh, we haven't necessarily um, stayed abreast of those technological changes in our personal analysis. So I think a lot of earlier stage pipeline programs are still underappreciated. Um, maybe not in 2020. Um, you know, it's it's been very healthy for biotech. Um, but even then, I think you know we focus so much on phase three trials because it's about to commercialize. Um, so it'll be cash flow. Uh, or uh, it's a commercial drug, so you know we actually have revenue. So these are revenue generating uh, companies potentially. But if you look at preclinical uh, state or clinical preclinical stage uh, companies, so whether um, and products that are in preclinical stages um, or even phase one, phase two, I think a lot of these companies are still undervalued because we're not uh, valuing their products uh, properly. Um, so we think the likelihood of failure is higher than potentially being approved. So um, Generally speaking, I like looking at uh, early stage companies and not only that, but smaller biotech companies. I feel like oftentimes these are founder led. Um, the innovators of technologies are still part of the company or at some capacity, part of the board of directors. Um, and especially now, um, I think, you know, in terms of technology and, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, working with other technologies that are up and coming, they know how it integrates within their platform. Um, so basically I'm looking at it from a technology point of view and understanding that. So uh, basically I think smaller biotech companies undervalued. Uh, if I look at the private sector, um, I used to believe that it was overvalued, but now I think that is changing a bit um, as we see more and more private companies emerge. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um... You know, yeah, there's some healthy premiums, obviously, and there is some wild speculation. But uh, today, just today, I was reading about two different things. Like there's something called biomolecular cognizance, which are coming out. There's a lot of startups building pipelines around those. Uh, there's gamma delta T cells. There's a bunch of different startups working on uh, developing those. So there's like, there's so much innovation and there's so much niche innovation almost. Like people picking, going real deep into specific topics, uh, specific, you know, technical platforms. Um, and it's hard for the market to keep up. So I think that also drives some of the inefficient pricing we see with some of these early stage companies. Yeah, and Max, we'll definitely be keeping an eye out for that volatility. I think that you do a great job. And like, I think you were hinting at with you with the comments on this of, of separating the signal from the noise. What's an interesting real development versus just what's hype out there surrounding a big conference like this? Yeah, and actually one example, we just talked about it was the uh, $1,000 genome, right? Um, so that was announced in 2014 at the JPM. And, you know, that was really kind of technically still hype. Um, even today, we don't have a $1,000 genome. I think uh, the real cost you get are closer to maybe $4,000 per human genome uh, for good coverage and everything like that. So 
Um, we still don't have it. So even that was hype. It's, you know, seven years later. Fair enough. Now, Manisha, let's bring the second topic to you because I think this is related to, uh, we're talking about valuations of public and private companies. We've seen a lot of IPO activity and also M&A activity. What, what do you make of all this in the healthcare space right now? Um, I think we're seeing a lot of technological change um, and you know what Max was saying earlier, uh, a lot of companies are emerging on very kind of niche areas, diving, uh, diving deep in, you know, Gamma, Delta, T-cells. Um, and I think it's because we're able to accelerate the pace of research. These, that, that's why we have all these companies emerging. Um, 20 in, actually, uh, you know, a lot of pharmaceutical companies, they're reaching patent cliffs. So they're looking out to acquire uh, growth stories. So that means acquiring smaller biotech companies. Um, in 2019, uh, even before uh, day one of the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, uh, Eli Lilly bought Loxo for $8 billion. Um, and that basically indicated that they wanted to expand their cancer franchise. Uh, you know, it's a huge market. Um, and then we saw later on kind of throughout the week that there were more acquisitions based on uh, broadening their cancer portfolio. So, you know, in terms of new IPOs uh, expected or IPOs or even mergers and acquisitions in 2021, um, I'm expecting, you know, a fair amount. Maybe it's not uh, within that week of the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, but, you know, it might be a few weeks later, February, March, but in Q1, I do expect uh, there to be quite a few. Um, I believe there were 12 mergers and acquisition announcements in 2020. Um, at the very least, I'm sure we'll see an equal number uh, in 2021. Um, I'm really excited to see uh, what happens uh, during JP Morgan. Uh, usually that's kind of the most exciting part of the conference. Tell me a little bit about SPACs. You have some statistics here that there's been quite a few healthcare related SPACs this past year. Yes, so in 2020, uh, there were 33 SPACs, or healthcare focused SPACs that were announced. So of those 33, uh, five of them found their significant other. So they're private uh, companies that they're merged with. So they're, and, I and correct me if I'm wrong, um, I think you know a bit more about stats than I do uh, here, Simon, but I think they have two and a half years or, or so to find a potential target to merge with. Um, so I think in 2021, the focus will be on the private sector. Uh, the SPACs that have not found a private company to merge with, they will be uh, kind of sifting through and listening to pitches of private companies and finding targets um, that they can uh, merge with. So I think, you know, for the first, I think most of uh, JP Morgan will be focused on the private side, uh, finding new technologies, uh, new up and coming, uh, you know, whether it's on the you know, cancer side, whether it's on the diagnostic side or whether it's focusing on autoimmune diseases or rare diseases. Um, so that's gonna be really interesting. Um, in, I believe, yeah, SPACs, yeah, in 2020, SPACs raised $6.3 billion. Um, so that's, you know, a fair amount. Um, I'd expect, I'd hope that, you know, we'll see a few SPAC-based uh, announcements during JP Morgan week, maybe, you know, a handful but uh, this is definitely the time to be vetting private companies. 
Yeah, and for anyone who's listening to this podcast or wondering what the heck we're talking about, a SPAC is a special purpose acquisition company where funds can be raised uh, up front. And then that company, which is a, sh a financial shell company, can merge with an existing operating private company to bring both of them public uh, at the same time. It's much more efficient than the traditional initial public offering IPOs we've gotten used to. And so, Manisha, if I hear you correctly, you're saying it's going to be really interesting to see which of those private companies with some real innovative science are actually on display because there might be a new way that they can start raising money these days. Right. And also, um, uh, one of the things I was thinking about is, you know, we have SPAC. So for these private companies, they have, you know, a ton of options now. Uh, do they want to be acquired by a company? Do they want to IPO or do they want to be a target for a SPAC? Um, so I think they have pricing power. So whichever methodology gives them, you know, the best cash value, um, I think, you know, the cards are in their hands. So I think private companies are, um, you know, they're winners right now uh, in all, for all intents and purposes. Um, and I, I mean, I'll, I'm keeping my eye out in terms of, you know, which private companies that I see are interesting and may have leverage, um, you know, whether it's an IPO or they uh, are part of a SPAC deal. It will certainly be interesting to watch, especially if we get some of these large deal makers. We've seen Shamath Palapatia kind of, you know, doing some frontier technology stuff that he's raising a lot of money through his facts. Be interesting to see if we see, if we see some other personalities like that on the healthcare side of things as well. Max, any thoughts before we move on on IPOs or SPACs? Yeah, the way to maybe think about it is, you know, when a company does a typical IPO, they do a roadshow. They go and drum up interest and uh, try to get make it easier for those investment bankers to sell the blocks of shares they're buying at the IPO. Uh, so JPM or these big conferences are kind of like a free roadshow, right? You get to go and you get good publicity. Um, it's amplified on, you know, across media because there's a lot of coverage of this event. Um, so it's a good way for private companies, even some that might be in stealth mode, you know, to kind of emerge and come out and, uh, you know, showcase what their technology platform is, what their pipeline might be. Um, and as Manisha said, you know, whether that's, an acquisition. There's a lot of larger companies that are starving for assets or need to acquire growth. Maybe their early stage pipelines aren't that impressive, or they're kind of pigeonholed in some of these, uh, um, you know, I don't want older, maybe focused areas. I don't want to say that, but um, you know, we saw like Eli Lilly's trying to get into a lot more gene therapy. Um, you know, buyers still investing heavily in, in cell therapies right now. Um, we just saw Biogen make a deal for you know building out its ophthalmology pipeline. Um, so like these types of things, I mean, there's, there's uh, going to be a lot of activity, a lot of interesting things coming out next week. It will be interesting to see how a more efficient way of fundraising for those trials could put public companies much more on display. Uh, Max, the next topic you wanted to talk about was actually next generation diagnostics. Uh, what, what is on your radar with this topic? So this has been a really hot space in recent years. Um, you know, when it started off, I don't know, a decade ago or whatever, I always thought this was kind of hype, right? Like, oh, we're never gonna be able to, you know, find signals with biomarkers and detect cancer early. That's ridiculous. But yeah, we actually can, obviously, right? We have these uh, big companies, Garden Health now, Exact Sciences, um, Illumina is trying to acquire Grail. Uh, is that closed? Do you guys know the uh -huh. acquisition? Well, Exact Sciences just closed its uh, acquisition of Thrive Early Detection, or just Thrive, um, just this week. So. Um, there's so much activity here, so much money to be made. Obviously, these are brand new markets. There's uh, you know multi-billion-dollar markets. Um, it's just wide open for 
opportunity and, and uh, capturing big market share. So, um, yeah, we were talking about this internally. I mean, we stumble across a new liquid biopsy platform or company like every month, it seems, right? We're always like, wait, did you ever hear of this? No, what? What's going on? Um, so it's, it's um, I'm, I'm interested to see how it, you know, what, what's going on at uh, with JPM, what presentations they make, any announcements. Um, we were talking about, again, there's so many companies, eventually there's going to be consolidation. Um, you know, Garden Health ended September with uh, over $1 billion in cash. Exact Sciences just made a big acquisition, but I'd also in September with, you know, 1.3 billion in cash. Um, so there's a lot of smaller companies to, uh, to be gobbled up. Um, I think we've kind of seen that already in, in, you know, uh, genetic testing, right? There's like a couple companies emerging as like the big companies. They're, they're consolidating the field. They're buying up these tinier little companies to add to their technology stacks. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if we see that in liquid biopsies, or, you know, I would include other next generation diagnostics that, uh, in that, not just looking for cancer, but early detection of, of uh, various other diseases. Sure. And Max, so getting to the science of this, and Manisha, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well, but kind of the fundamental science is we're trying to detect things earlier and earlier stage, right? You mentioned Grail, you mentioned uh, Garden Health. I mean, the, the ultimate goal of diagnostics is to be the least invasive as possible. So you have good patient outcomes. You don't have to pull out the scalpel if you can use uh, a blood test for something like that, but also to detect and characterize correctly uh, cancerous tumors through the bloodstream or through other ways. I mean, is this, are, is it a lot of proprietary IP that goes into each one of these diagnostics. And do you think that's what makes this area uh, ripe for consolidation? Yeah, so I guess there's two ways to look at it. Um, first is there's a lot of context and nuance that goes into each product approval for a liquid biopsy. So, you know, there might be whatever, half a dozen products that uh, are targeting, you know, non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, but you have to dig a little bit beyond that, right? It's not just about the indication. Uh, these products might be approved for you know, specific mutations and specific genes. It might be for only patients that are eligible for certain treatments. Um, you know, it might be only using next generation sequencing, which I think everybody does now anyway. Um, so it's not just looking at what cancer are they looking for. It's also all these other conditions that uh, get slapped on the approval and the specifics uh, of each approval. So that's the first thing. It's not as crowded as it looks. There's a lot of different ways to slice it up. Uh, second is, you know, the longer term, the holy grail is like, how early can we detect cancer, right? Um, right now we're detecting, uh, you know, more advanced cancers, which is still very valuable uh, and using it for, you know, detecting recurrence. Uh, people have had remission. So that's very valuable as well. Uh, but the earlier we can det detect cancer, the easier it is to treat, uh, the better the prognosis for the patient. Uh, but that's also a much harder data problem, right? Uh, so I found this little example here. Uh, so most of these platforms um, look for something called cell-free DNA, uh, also called circulating tumor DNA. So it's abbreviated with CFDNA or CTDNA. I've seen both. It means the same thing, I think. Um, so for, you know, we have prenatal diagnostics, right? Um, and the cell-free DNA of you know, the baby in the mother's blood is about 10%. So that's a very high percentage. Uh, and that's why we've seen these products, you know, they've been around for, uh, man, I don't know, 10 years. Remember that company Sequinom a while ago? That's when I started investing when I was a baby, right? So 10% of the uh, composition of maternal blood, that's a pretty high percentage. Uh, for advanced cancers though, that cell-free DNA composition drops all the way to 0.46%. 
of what's found in the blood. So there's a lot more noise, to use that analogy again, uh, very small signal of what you're actually trying to find. So you need very good detection tools and you need very good computational power uh, to be able to detect that signal. But then when you get to early cancers, the cell-free DNA composition in the blood drops all the way to 0.01%. So it's an incredibly difficult data problem to solve. You need a lot of data. You need a lot of computational power. Uh, we probably need better reagents and assays and proteins and enzymes that we don't even have yet. Um, so all these companies are, you know, trying to race ahead and get there and who can have the first one or who can have the best data. You know, so we see Garden Health has its own proprietary company, uh, platform rather, for early detection of cancers. Um, you know, Grail, obviously, that's what the whole platform is built around as far as I know. Uh, exact Sciences, that's why it acquired Thrive. Uh, Thrive has, in my opinion, what might be one of the best so far uh, platforms for early detection, uh, you know, liquid biopsies. Uh, but the caveat, of course, is most of these are in studies that won't be releasing data until, you know, the second half of this decade or, you know, the end of this decade. So it's going to be a while before, uh, you know, these products emerge. But, um, you know, man, what it means for healthcare and the prognosis of cancers. I mean, it's how do you put a value on that, right? Right now, it's kind of hard to see. But you know, it's going to come down to the data. Uh, who, who can detect it? At what stage? Um, what percentage specificity and selectivity do you have? Um, so, you know, that's how this competitive landscape is going to kind of get sorted. Yeah, um, I predict the, not the winner, because I think there are, uh, there's definitely enough room for more, uh, multiple companies to, or liquid biopsy companies to have, you know, great technology. But the tricky part would be timing when to get the actual liquid biopsy. So with CFDNA, uh, it's, I mean, basically these are fragments of nucleic acid. So after a cell uh, undergoes apoptosis or necrosis. So it's only in the bloodstream for a certain period of time. And for specific types of cancers, uh, the duration of how long it's in the bloodstream is different. So if you wait too long, um, so say, you know, maybe you waited two, you know, two days too long before you got your liquid biopsy, it won't show it. Um, it won't show up as positive or um, even if you are positive. Um, so you have to time it right. So I think computation is gonna be extremely important. Um, understanding the disease uh, and, and it's gonna be very different for which type of tumor as well, um, which Max was saying. So it's gonna be very specific to that. So uh, I think a platform that is modular and scalable for multiple type, or that basically can predict um, based on the type of tumor and uh, the kinetics of that tumor uh, will be helpful. Um, and then recurrence monitoring is also gonna be a huge market. A lot of these companies uh, will be able to uh, positively or negatively confirm uh, the presence of a tumor, but then can they adequately um, do recurrence monitoring for these cancers? Um, I, I think that's going to be an important part as well. So um, I think plenty of room for winners uh, and then um, you can tell that this is a huge market. Uh, Invitae had acquired uh, Archer Diagnostics for $1.4 billion. And just shortly after, that's when Illumina decided to rail Grail back in uh, into, uh, and acquired them um, at a premium for that matter. So a huge area, um, you know, there in terms of therapeutics, um, you know, definitely a huge market, but er detecting early stage cancer, as Max said, uh, that's a holy grail that we're trying to, uh, achieve here. And that's a good point from Manisha about, um, you know, the timing of when you, you know, perform a liquid biopsy. So a lot of these companies are building 
uh, technologies. Um, so, you know, cell-free DNA is kind of like what they're focused on, but then there's all these ancillary and like things around it that they're trying to find as well. So uh, companies are building technology around additional biomarkers because uh, you might need to look for specific proteins or, you know, other types of DNA or not just what, that you can detect the cell-free DNA, but also, um, you know, how is it methylated, right? You want to look at the uh, epigenetics of it. So there's all these other really super nerdy things Manish and I could talk about forever. Uh, maybe we, we should probably talk about that when we get some uh, the article system up on our website, but um, you know, going to the nuance and context of it. But there's all these other areas. Uh, so it's, it gets very complex very quickly. And I think that's where you know, these tech platforms will be differentiated, as well as, as Manish just said, you know, a modular scalable one as well. Yeah, I agree. And just to pitch in with my two cents too, it's really uh, encouraging to see a lot of the payers getting on board with this. You're starting to see some local coverage determinations for Medicare. There's codes now that you can actually uh, get a liquid biopsy reimbursed. It's not just out of pocket for patients, for the doctors, there's things like that. Uh, a lot of that overhead, you know, just kind of stuff like that that we take for granted. When you're a really technical company, you don't want to have to deal with a lot of that stuff, like dealing with the payers and Medicare and stuff like that. So I, I think it makes a case also for consolidation in this space as well. Uh, Manisha, let's change let's change topics a little bit. Let's talk about AI in healthcare. Something else you wanted to talk about that you're watching for JP Morgan. Yeah, so I was uh, looking through JP or just uh, different panels uh, they had on AI and then also the side conferences. Um, there's a huge focus on AI and healthcare. So I'm excited to see what advancements we made. Um, uh, you know, Max was the first to uh, note this uh, when AlphaGo, um, you know, or uh, for DeepMind's AlphaGo, you know, for protein folding, you know, that was a huge feat uh, for biotech and healthcare. Um, seeing what else is uh, up and coming. So um, there's AWS and Illumina. Uh, there's a conference, or not a conference, a panel just on that, uh, seeing how, a um, so cloud services and how, um, I guess, AI there. Uh, there's a different uh, panel, or I guess an event called 40 Meets AI. So they're talking about advancing drugs, devices, diagnostics, and digital health using AI. Um, I think we will be seeing more and more tech companies collaborating with biopharmaceutical companies. So I'd like to see uh, which biotech and biopharmaceutical companies um, are looking at, are looking towards uh, collaborating with uh, traditional technology companies. Um, you know, in 2020, we saw that Twist Biosciences, for example, uh, decided to collaborate with uh, not only just Illumina, which is uh, a device or a tools and diagnostics company, but Microsoft. So we have Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, uh, Google, they're all en entering into the health arena. Um, I think it will be interesting to see which biotech companies decide to go, uh, I guess, the tech route. And I think AI is going to become a very important pillar in accelerating and advancing uh, biotech innovation. So that's part of the reason I'll be paying attention to that. I think those that choose to go out, uh, go, uh, go towards the AI route uh, will be long-term winners, um, especially you know, as we're, for example, when we we're talking about liquid biopsies, uh, you need that computational rigor. These technology companies have that capability. So it's not just biotech. We, we can't just have traditional biologists, but we need, um, we need uh, engineers, uh, computer scientists uh, to create these algorithms, predict certain candidates, um, we, we want to increase productivity in R&D. So I think com uh, those biotech companies that are talking about AI and collaborating with technology companies, 
they are forward looking. And I think as an investor, um, that's an important metric for me to look at um, because I think those would be the long-term winners. So not, you know, companies that are just still working on or looking towards, you know, I will be using a pipette and doing everything kind of the biological route. I think there's a convergence that's happening and um, that's where uh, innovation is. Let's follow up on that one more step, Manisha, because we saw IBM Watson try to get into AI into healthcare a couple of years ago. Didn't work. Pushback from doctors, or at least a lot of doctors, weren't very happy with the solution that it was coming up with. But now you see platforms like Google trying to get a lot of clinical data from hospitals, from Ascension Health uh, out in the Midwest United States. I mean, do you think it's the right time for AI in healthcare right now? This has traditionally been a pretty slow-moving industry that's kind of shied away from tech companies creeping into their turf. But are things a little different now? Are we going to start seeing a lot more announcements? I'd like to think so. I. So I so I've worked with IBM Watson uh, in terms of doing um, so this was at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center um, and in differential diagnosis. Yeah, there were a few times where IBM Watson, they completely predicted, you know, giving the wrong treatment and the patient probably would have died if they listened to IBM Watson. Um, but AI, the improvements we're seeing in AI, um, it's exponential. So I think we are kind of at the prime point where we can actually trust uh, AI. So if you look at CRISPR, for example, uh, so using CRISPR genome editing, uh, so AWS actually has a free tool for researchers um, that they can use to basically predict, okay, here are guide sequences that you can use that will make sure that you don't have off-target genome editing. Um, and that's helping researchers expedite their research process. So if you're looking at Google or any of these other tech companies, I think right now is the time because we are seeing more accuracy. Um, I don't remember the statistic, maybe Max, you remember, but um, what was the accuracy rate for AlphaGo in predicting AlphaGo or predicting protein structure? It was something. Oh, I don't remember. It, it just blew away all the other teams that were there and it wasn't even close. So. But yeah, so I mean, I would agree, but I would say maybe I'd be a little more careful still um, with AI in, in bio. So the thing to remember is, you know, it's not just about having data, it's about having annotated data. And biology is very complex. We still don't have a great handle on it. Um, we still have a lot that we haven't standardized. So I think, like you said, using AI can go off the rails pretty quickly if we get to, uh, um, you know, too full of ourselves with, oh, we have uh, the computer will figure it out. It'll give us the answer. Like, you know, it doesn't always work out like that right now. Um, so there's specific areas where I think it makes a lot of sense. You know, we can feed it a lot of like pictures of uh, suspicious looking moles and were they actually melanoma or not? And we can train a computer to do that better than a dermatologist and save everybody time and money. So that makes sense. Um, you know, it took uh, DeepMind uh, years uh, and a lot of data and iterations to be able to, you know, get the results it did last year, um, you know, at that conference uh, for protein folding. Um, so, but when to start off, it wasn't necessarily that good, you know, so it takes time to build out these data sets and, and tweak these things. Um, still an amazing advancement, but, you know, it, uh, there's other areas where maybe it doesn't make sense um, right now, or maybe it won't ever make sense. I don't know. But um, yeah, in, like in drug discovery, right, we would need a lot more data early on. So. But, uh, but yeah, this is, I didn't know there was this at JPM. I didn't look at the, uh, <laughs> I didn't look at the side comms that's going on. 
Yeah, it definitely sounds like like AI is going to be a tool that seems like it's really innovative right now, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see so many companies just kind of all across the board using that uh, within just a couple of years here. And so to, to close this out, you know, I, I'm going to go, I'm going to put both Manisha and Max on the spot, but I'll give them a little bit of time to think about this and I'll answer it first to ask, what is one thing in healthcare that you personally are really excited about in 2021? And I might go first just by saying that I, I think that something I'm pretty excited about is seeing the shift from just the clinic and just the hospitals to kind of consumers getting more options of being more involved with their own health. We've seen companies like GoodRx going public, which allows people to choose uh, from pharmacies more efficiently. We've seen telemedicine and teledoc kind of bringing people to computer screens to more regularly be checking in now with their acquisition of Lavongo, actually getting data that empowers them to kind of be a little bit more involved. I like this push to consumer-facing healthcare that a lot of companies are, tend to be pursuing. Max, I'm going to go to you first. What's something you're really excited about in healthcare in 2021? I'm going to stick with what I said earlier. I mean, I was just reading all day about this, so it's on my mind. But just how how many startups are out there, and they're going, uh, they're picking specific, you know, niche areas. It's not just, you know, maybe five years ago a company would have said, "Oh, we're a gene therapy company." Well, now there's, you know, you're not just a gene therapy company. You might be, well, we're a gene therapy company, but we've engineered this new vector that can hold more DNA, so we can actually, you know, insert larger transgenes. Um, you know, where we can target different tissues other than the liver or muscle. So it's, there's like very specific pipeline and, and technology platforms that are getting built out. Uh, or again, I was reading about biomolecular condensates. I didn't even know what those were until today. So, um, and there's a whole gang of startups investing in that and a bunch of big money from big pharma or larger pharmaceutical companies, I should say, um, you know, investing in those and helping them with their, you know, series A and B rounds. Um, so just the emergence of all these areas, it's, exciting and to use the quote from Manish it's like drinking from a fire hose there's so much to keep up with but um, I'm looking forward to it lots going on how about it Manisha what's something you're really excited about in 2021 in healthcare there's so much I'm excited about um, first of all I would say I am so excited to get more human data for CRISPR-based uh, clinical trials I mean I'm not saying you know these are one-time cures but the fact that they're one-time treatment paradigms, I would love to see it work or you know, maybe it won't work, but I'm excited to see the data. Um, I have high hopes for them. So uh, I definitely am look excited about that. I'm also excited about um, DNA-based storage improvements in, uh, throughout 2021, uh, seeing you know, what happens there. Um, and I'm also excited about advancing microbiome-based uh, therapeutics. Um, I, you know, at one point people talked about it quite a bit. Um, uh, it kind of fell off the radar. So I hope that 2021 re-engages uh, that field a bit more. So by microbiome-based research, basically uh, we're more bacteria than human. So, you know, how these bacterial cells that are in us, how that affects our health uh, and using kind of our gut microbiome to uh, change our kind of health status. So I think that's a very interesting concept. Um, so I, I want to see that field advance a bit, and I'm excited uh, because I think there we, we will be seeing more clinical trial data there and more companies uh, emerging in that field. Well, no, no shortage of exciting things going on in healthcare right now. Our team is ready to drink from the fire hose and see what happens at the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference next year. Follow our coverage of the event. We're at 7investing on Twitter. Uh, Manisha's Twitter is at msammy underscore 7. That's M 
S A M Y underscore seven. And Max is at seven Max Chatsko. That's at the number seven M A X X C H A T S K O. We are really excited about all the things going on. We can't wait to give some more updates on what happens at the conference next week. Max and Manisha, thanks very much for being on this episode of our Seven Investing Podcast. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We are here to empower you to invest in your future. We are Seven Investing. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.